Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Hey, come on in. We're going to jump into this study on James. I've been uh, incredibly excited about doing this with you all. Uh, it is a great, great book, incredibly practical, great things in it. Uh, what we're going to do just to kind of, we'll do something in this class. If you've ever been in a class with me and I recognize a lot of familiar faces, um, this is my home church. It's where I grew up. It's, uh, you know, I'm a Timothy out of this church doing ministry now. Uh, but I also know that when I went to church here, it was a lot smaller than what it is now. It was pretty much tiny. Uh, and now it's, it's really large. And so there are going to be times where you're going to sit at, the, at a table with people you know every week. And there may be times where other people come in here or it's a smaller group and we kind of merge tables together. I just love asking questions that are never meant to like, they're never going to be deep, deep questions. They're going to like make you contemplate, you know, scary things. They're usually meant to be fun. And so today we'll just do something every week just to kind of get to know each other. And and again, it won't ever be awkward, uh, but we're going to do two things this morning or tonight. Uh, One, I want you to describe, you grab a pen, borrow some one next to you. You should all be getting a note card. I want you to describe your, your day in three words. Three words, describe your day. Okay. Now I got something else you're going to do. Go ahead and write it down and then kind of go around and share that with the person next to you. Okay. Okay. Hey, hopefully you've got a chance to do that. Keep talking if you haven't. It's okay. Anybody have one that was kind of creative, made you laugh a little bit because we love ones that make us laugh? Anybody have one? Come on. Somebody have one on the table. Call them out. Who had one that made you laugh? Yeah? Two words? Yeah? Okay. Herding kittens. All right. Okay. If, if by any reason, you know, your, your three words should be on a recording, let me know that before you say them out loud. Um, anybody else? What you? Well, your three words? Chicken, no head. Whoa, that might be the winner. Chicken, no head. Okay, I got you, I got you. Okay, okay, okay. I was like trying to picture what you had for lunch. Anybody else have a good one? I was like, wow, chicken, no head. It's like a special order you made. At, I don't even want to go what type of restaurant that would be. Uh, start doing stereotypes and get in trouble. Anybody else? Anybody else? Fun, fun thing you did. Okay, next thing we're going to do real quick. Uh, I want you, and you can only use up to 11 words is the max. If you can use less, that's great. Uh, but this does time with James. I want you to introduce yourself, say your name, and introduce yourself in 11 words or less. Okay? Hi, my name is Jason. Love Jesus, father, husband, outdoorsman. I don't know how many words that was. I didn't even count. I just made it up. No idea. Go ahead and write that down while I'm talking, okay? Go ahead and write that down. How would you introduce yourself in 11 words or less? What would you say? For some of you, you don't need to put this much thought into it. I can promise you it's not going to be your epitaph, nothing like that. So uh, we're just looking for just, just a casual way to introduce this book of James. So here we go. Let's dive in. I'm going to tell you, first of all, just a little bit more about me as a teacher. Um, not, not that it matters, but it helps we kind of get to know each other. My name's Jason. Uh, my, I go to church here. Uh, been, my wife and I have been married a little over 24 years now. Uh, we've got four children. I've got one that's a college student, sophomore in college. I've got one that is a junior in high school at Webb City. Uh, and then I've, those are both boys. Then I've got a gorgeous little girl uh, that just went into seventh grade. And then we've got Cy Guy, who is my kindergartner. So I've got the gamut, sophomore in college to kindergarten. 
So kindergarten's a story. We may get into that later on, which will have me turn off the recording, uh, but not tonight. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I've been going to church here for a long time. I work for an organization called Christ in Youth. Uh, we do events all over the nation and for, for students. been in ministry for, for quite a while now, graduate of Ozark, and, and honestly just love unpacking God's Word. So as we get into this stuff, <clears throat> a little bit that I'll say, I'm not going to give you a ton of application. Typically what I'll do is I'll just, we'll just dive into the text, and I'm going to let you draw out things that, that maybe uh, where the Holy Spirit's prompting you, speaking to you, saying something to you, and, and let that be more introspective between you and Jesus in terms of the conversations you guys have out of the text. And so we'll just kind of walk through it, have a good time, uh, but tonight we're just going to spend some time just meeting, meeting the author, meeting James. And so let's just jump into this. Uh, real quick, anybody willing to read yours, your introduction? Anybody got one that you're willing to read out loud? Yeah? My name's Blake. I use exactly 11 words. That's awesome. You're over right now, though. These don't count. Those didn't count, did they? My name's not part of it. Okay, all right, all right. That's fine. Husband, daddy, boomer sinner. <laughs> Love that. dies. Okay. What was the last one? Pharmacist. Love it. That was good. Anybody else want to do it? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, uh, my name's Bill. Bill? Been married 55 years. Woo! 55 years married is a big deal. I have loved the church since first day I've come here. Oh, uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Anybody else want to read yours? Don't want to put you on the spot. You don't have to, but anybody else want to do one? Just we kind of get to know each other? Yes. It's kind of boring, but that's, <laughs> I'm Amber, mom, runner, wife, follower of Jesus. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, let's meet James. Let's kind of get into this book. Uh, it's an uh, amazing, amazing, amazing book. Uh, there's about four different James that are mentioned in Scripture. Two of them, not a chance in the world they wrote it. Uh, they're, just, they're just not uh, large enough characters mentioned in Scripture to, to be that individual. Uh, that narrows it down to two. Uh, one of them died too early to have written the book. And so that leaves us with our last James that could have written this book. And this particular James was a half-brother of Jesus. So he was half-brother Jesus. Pretty amazing when your half-brother is going to write a book about you. And, and one of the things that makes it even, even more powerful is we're going to look over real quick into, uh, into I believe it's John chapter 7. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 5. i got to find it myself. <clears throat> James is not somebody who early on you think would write a book about his brother. Uh, if you look over John chapter 5, go ahead and just read that real quick at your tables, and then I'll read it out loud. Have, I do this a lot. I love when you guys are reading scripture. So somebody just volunteer. 7-5, seven, seven, my bad. 7-5. Let me make sure I'm right on that. I need to look at 7-5 real quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. 7-5. John 7-5. Somebody read that out loud at your table. Okay, so here we go. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Very early on, you've got Jesus in his ministry with friction and conflict in his own family. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Whew. That's tough. How do we get from this moment where John, and even, even one of the other writers, of, of, you know, you get another one of Jesus' half-brothers. I say half-brothers because they had the same mother, but definitely not the same father. You have another half-brother of Jesus that writes another book. Anybody know what book that is? Take a stab at it. You, can take, you just guess. It's okay. We're not going to take away your birthday and Christmas if you're wrong or anything. Just take a guess. Anybody who's like, I don't know. What is it? It's hard to guess. We'll just say, ah, it wasn't that one. It's a different one. And we'll take a stab at it. One other book of the Bible that's written by a half-brother of Jesus. 
kind of interesting. They're both really short books. Jude, yep, Jude. Only two books that are written by the half-brothers of Jesus. Really interesting. And so as you get into this book, I mean, you're looking at, this is a guy who grew up in Jesus. I mean, he, he grew up watching. Jesus would have been the oldest brother. You know, there's a good chance they shared the same room because these weren't big houses. Maybe even at times shared the same bed. There's no doubt that he would have watched his brother growing up. Uh, we don't know exactly how old. We could guesstimate the age difference and all that. Doesn't necessarily matter for this conversation. But we know that Jesus is the older brother in the situation. And here you've got James coming along watching him grow up. I don't know what happens from this moment where the dove descends, Jesus' ministry begins, and all of a sudden these brothers turn against. Where, where literally they, 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 think he's, they think he's crazy because he's claiming to be God. And there's this moment of tension where John writes, man, his own brothers didn't even believe in him. Anybody know what the moment is? I'm going to show you what it is here in a second. Anybody think guess what that moment is? There's a moment where it flips. And honestly, it does not flip. I'll just give you a clue. It does not flip from what we can tell in Jesus' lifetime. I believe there's something else that changes it for James, in my opinion. I think there's something else that completely, completely wakes James up in a way that he did not know how to handle it. I'll just go ahead and give it to you. Get your Bibles. Turn to 1 Corinthians. This, to me, is the game changer. It's what changes everything. In James' life, and honestly, it's what changes everything for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 7. So here you find this half-brother Jesus, living in tension with his own brother, not necessarily even believing who he is. And then something happens, he shows up in James chapter 15, verse, uh, we'll start with... Uh, Verse 3, it says, For what I received, Paul's talking about this, he says, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of who, uh, who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And I want you to read the next verse, because I think it's powerfully important to everything that we're going to study. Somebody at your table, read the next verse aloud. It's interesting. It's powerful. Then he appears to James. We don't really know the true spiritual condition of James's heart when this takes place. We don't. We, I've got to be careful, but I'll be honest to you, man. Sometimes my imagination can take me places, and you've got to draw the distinction in your own heart between my imagination and reality. We don't know. But I picture this moment almost like what happened with Thomas. If you remember the story of Thomas when he doubts, and he stands there, and he says, you don't believe. Man, touch my hands, touch my side. And all of a sudden, I, got, I literally have goosebumps right now. I can't imagine all of a sudden that this James, in my mind, who, who has never really believed in his brother, we don't really have any story of James being there on the day that he's killed. And in fact, the day that Jesus is killed, what does Jesus say? He looks at John, not James. He looks at John, and what does he say to John? Anybody remember that story? He says, this is your mama, talking about Mary. We have no clue that James is anywhere there on the day that Jesus is crucified. We don't have any story of him picking him up and taking him to the tomb. We have no, no background on that. But we do note in this moment that at some point Jesus, after he dies, and most importantly after he resurrects from the dead, 
that all these different people he appears to, he appears to 500. In my mind, I, I love, I don't know if this chronology matters in, in what Paul's writing, but he does say after that, after that. So I believe that what happens is all of a sudden he starts appearing to these people. And then I wonder what it's like for James. He's hearing all of a sudden 500 people talking about the fact that they've seen his big brother. Can you imagine losing someone you love? I mean, for me, in this moment, if 500 people told me they'd seen my grandfather, my hands would start sweating. I'd have goosebumps. The hair would start standing up in the back of my neck because I miss that man more than just about anything. Miss him. Couldn't believe it if somebody told me I was going to get to see my grandpa again. I can't, I can't fathom that. If somebody told me I was going to see my nephew again, I couldn't imagine in a moment if somebody said, if I heard somebody say, hey, man, we saw him. 500 other people say, we saw him. And I wonder in that moment what's going on in James' heart. You've seen him. No, 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 no. He, he's dead. They put him in a tomb. And then all of a sudden, we don't even know where it happens. But he says that thing right there in verse 7. He says, and then he appeared to James. What was that moment like? What was it like? Man, draw yourself into the story. Let yourself feel the, the power of your own humanity in that moment. That this is the person that at some level you, you had denied. And now he's standing in front of you. You can still see the scars in his hand, the wound in his side, and he's standing in front of you in this resurrected body that's absolutely supernatural, but also incredibly physical. I can't imagine that, that conversation. Hey, little brother. <laughs> Whew. Man, can you imagine that talk? Hey, little brother, it's me. Can you imagine what was going on in James's heart? Amazing. Blows my mind. Here's the truth of the matter. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. We can talk about the crucifixion for hours, and we can focus on the cross, but the cross is not the ultimate point of joy here. The cross is not what ultimately brings the power. What ultimately brings the power is the resurrection, and it changes everything. And it changes James. He flips that as long as you continue to worship a God on a cross, no power in that. It's when you worship the God of an empty tomb that your life is absolutely transformed and everything changes. So I like James. He's a half-brother of Jesus, and if you've ever doubted in your life, James gets you. If you ever looked at Jesus and said, man, I don't understand you, he understands what you're feeling right now. He gets it. And here you are being introduced to the half-brother of Jesus And he's about to write a book that you get to read. And I'll even go so far as to say this. There are some theological discussions about this next point. Here's my opinion. You can make a case for about three or four different books. I can make a pretty strong case for James. I believe James is not only a book written by the half-brother of Jesus. And I can back it up and explain why. I believe it's the first book of the Bible ever written. I think this is the first one. Matthew's not the first one, Mark, Luke, none of those. None of those, no scholar would ever think those are the first books of the Bible written. There, there are people who make a, a tie for, you know, 1 Thessalonians, or people who might make a play for Galatians or 1 Corinthians. There's people who can make a play for different texts. But when you understand some of the wordage in James, I believe James is the first book of the Bible ever written. First book penned, is my opinion. And we'll talk about why, I can give you dates and all kinds of stuff and unpack that. We can get into that a little bit. But I would say there's a lot of theologians that would agree with that. Good chance that this is the first book of the Bible ever penned. It's penned by the half-brother of Jesus who at one point doubted. It was absolutely transformed by the resurrection of his own brother. Are you ready to study this book? Yeah? Ready? 
Let's get into it, man. Let's dive into this. Um, here's the, uh, the secret again. I have this nasty tendency. Some of you guys who have been in class with me know, if we've studied before, I get through about one verse and I'll camp out there all night. We're going to spend the entire night on one verse, just straight up and honest. We're not going to get very far. Don't worry about it. This class is going to go for 12 weeks. It's just what we're doing. And we're going to have a great time in it. I promise we'll cover the whole book. But tonight, I can't get any further than one verse because that first verse is so amazing, man. It's so packed with power. And here's the part that frustrates me the most. I'm going to miss three classes with you guys. Next week, I have to go to Northern Ireland. And then I'm back. Third week, I've got to go to the Republic of Ireland which is, I know, I'd love to take you guys all with me. It'd be fun. Uh, and then in one week, I get to go to Colorado. So I'm not crying over where I'm going, but I'm really sad that next week's text is absolutely, if I could teach on any text at all, I teach on it. Uh, my, my story with that text is, uh, it is uh, close, close to my heart. And so uh, I won't get to teach it, but um, I'm bummed. So we'll just say that. Uh, the story behind that text for me uh, if you don't know, if you haven't been around me in, in the last year, on September 28th, I was stupid, uh, coming up on a year anniversary, and I was an absolute, f- I would say I was a fool. I, I was just having fun. I, was, I, I wasn't stupid or anything like that. I shouldn't say that about myself. I was just having a great time. Uh, but I was mountain biking with my uh, family and made a stupid, stupid error, uh, doing something I shouldn't do. And so the text that you're going to get into next week that I don't get to teach on, which really saddens me. Who's teaching next week, Scott? You? Well, they're not going to come now. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We don't, I don't know. Scott hasn't told me yet. <laughs> Every time he comes in this room, I always call him out. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, crud. Yeah. Anyway, next week is the, the text I wish I could teach on because it's my absolute favorite. Uh, long story short is I was riding uh, on a thing I had no business being on. Uh, living way beyond my skill set and wiped out on that bike, broke two vertebrae in my neck. Uh, and, uh, and for some reason, I popped up off the ground, I grabbed my neck, and I knew it was broke. And so you can tell if you look, there's a scar right there where they cut into my throat to pull the vertebrae out, and I got all kinds of stuff back there now. But long story short is when I was laying on the ground, you know, the, the text that I kept running to with all my heart was this, this text in James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, you face trials of many different kinds because of testing your faith. And I just kept quoting that text on the ground. I quoted in the ambulance. I quoted in the helicopter. It was what I was quoting going into the surgery. And so I'm pumped you guys get to, I love that text. I can't wait to see you guys go through it. I wish I could go through it with you. But tonight, we're just going to get to verse 1, okay? So buckle up. Here we go. Let's get into James. So I ask you to talk about your story. Uh, If you could do it in just a few sentences, how would you describe it? And uh, if you look at it, uh, James just has an amazing introduction. He just starts off and he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I was going to introduce myself, that's, that's probably not what I'd do. I don't know that I'd lead with that. Um, I'd like to think in all my, you know, spiritually pious moments that I could somehow bring myself to say something so divine, but let's be honest, I probably wouldn't. I'm going to introduce myself as somebody who loves fly, fly fishing and hunting. I'm going to introduce myself as a, as a husband, as a dad. I'm going to introduce myself as a lot of different things. And, and I think about all the different ways that James could have introduced himself. I mean, you look at it, if you understand James' story, Paul will say, and Peter will agree, that James is the most influential member 
in, in the early church. In fact, the most influential member in the, in the Jerusalem church, hands down. He was a leader of the Jerusalem church. He was the guy. And in fact, when Paul was having a hard time and Paul needed someone to go to, I mean, we all elevate Paul. James is who Paul went to when Paul needed to sort things out. You'll find it a couple of different times in Scripture where he appeals to James or he goes to James. And, and, and James is one of the few people that whenever he summoned Paul, Paul would come. I mean, there's a relationship with James in the early church. The man, he is, he's a big deal. In fact, he's called a pillar of the church. I think it's Galatians that says that, but I'm not positive. Anybody know that off the top of your head? I think Galatians says that. I need to look that up. He's referred to as a pillar in the early church. And so you're thinking about all the ways you're going to introduce yourself. Let's just have fun with it. Just off the information you know, if you're writing the book, you know, you think about when you look at it, you look at a book and you flip to the back covers and the authors always write like the little bio and talking about how they introduce themselves. If, you know, if, if we were going to write James's bio and he was going to be you know, a bit cocky and arrogant, what are some ways he could have introduced himself? Let's just call him out. Huh? Yeah, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, that alone, I'm thinking like, whoa, okay. That gets your attention, wouldn't it? I mean, like, you might read the book. If all of a sudden your lead was, James, half-brother of Jesus, you best listen to me. That might get some attention. But he doesn't do that. He could have, but he doesn't. What else could he have done? Yeah. He could have said, James, leader of the first megachurch. I mean, it really was. People come by the thousands, and James leading this. I mean, it's not a building like this, but it's a massive church of people coming. He could have said, James, leader of the first megachurch on the planet. Could have done that, but he doesn't. How else could he have introduced himself? Anybody got other ideas how, how he could do this if he's being arrogant? I think you could have said, James, you know, the guy who uh, tells Paul what he needs to hear. James, mentor to Paul. I don't know. I don't think he saves a mentor to Paul. There's a lot of different ways he could have introduced himself, but he doesn't. Very early on, you find James introducing himself in a way that's powerful. He calls himself a servant. Now, that word servant, any of your Bibles use a different word than servant. What do you have? Yep. Slave. Slave. Let's talk about that. What translation do you have? Okay, NLT. We hear that word slave. We hear that word servant. Let's just talk about it for a bit. What do you think of? What comes to mind? Don't, don't be shy. Huh? Yeah, we, we come to what we've known in our own history with slavery in this country. Immediately, there's, there's mindsets of that. You know, we, we picture, you know, some sort of a, a servant that if they were to leave, they're going to be bit, beaten, they're going to be struck down. You know what I mean? There's, there's that image of slave. Okay? Anybody else have a different image of slave or servant that you want to throw out? Somebody works for you. Okay? Now, it's interesting you use that word, slave or servant, and a lot of somebody that works for you, what, what's the connotation there? Huh? For free? Yeah, they're not getting any money. Okay? Anybody else got a different connotation? Less important? Okay. It's interesting when you start unpacking, in the, in the Bible there's a lot of different ways to look at that word. What this would mean is, let, let's take, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. In biblical terms, what you could do is there are times where you could choose of your own volition to offer yourself in service of another. You could say, I would like to do this. Sometimes it could be to pay off a debt. 
You could say, you know what? And it didn't always mean that you were going to be beaten. It didn't always mean that you're going to have a bad master. It didn't always mean that your master was cruel. And sometimes in our own culture, we automatically want to put that spin on it. It's a cruel master. It's somebody who's, who's vicious and mean. But a lot of times you could say, man, I've got this debt. Uh, can, I, can I put myself in your service until I've paid off my debt? Does it make sense? Now, we, we all have that. We're all slaves of mortgage company. It's just different for us. But... At the end of the day, what, what it's getting to in this is that James has willingly made himself a servant. He's willingly made himself a servant because of the debt he owes his brother. What is that debt? Huh? Yeah, salvation. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's willingly put himself and said, I am a bond servant. I am a willing, willing person in service of Jesus. He automatically says that. And that word servant is really, really powerful. He puts himself in a position, not a position to be esteemed, not a position of prestige. He doesn't try to flaunt you know, his resume. He doesn't try to flaunt his power. He doesn't try to flaunt his influence. And he had all those things. James had all of that, man. He was the guy in Jerusalem. There's a massive council that shows up in, 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 uh, in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 15. Huge council shows up, and they're trying to decide. Is the gospel, you know, are we going to let these Gentiles become Christians or not? Which is basically all of us. And there's this tension between Jews and Gentiles and trying to figure all this out. Well, you know, if they do want to follow us, they're going to have to do all the rituals that we do and all this stuff that we do. They've got to do the same things. And, and all of a sudden there's this argument and there's tension about what Peter thinks, what Paul thinks. And it's James who stands up in this moment and quiets old places and says, Hey, listen. Listen, what God is doing, and he just basically lays out this massive highway for the Gentiles to come to Jesus. James is the guy that does that. James is the one who sets the tone at that council. It's a massive council. He's the one who really flips it, turns everything on its head as that leader in Jerusalem. James is is highly influential. But in this moment, when you see it, he does not say, I'm a megachurch pastor. He does not say... My brother's influential, you know, I'm related to Jesus. He doesn't give us his pedigree. He doesn't go through and talk about I'm a leader in this city. He doesn't go through and say, you know, I'm the guy who's going to, you know, be the one that arbitrates the council. He doesn't do that. He just says, hey, I'm James. Just servant of Jesus. I'm a servant. I'm a willing, a willing servant of Jesus. I put myself into his service. Because I, as a bond servant, have a debt that I owe. And that's my heart. I'm, I'm in willing service to Jesus. In willing service to Jesus. No part of me is trying to be resistant to that because there is a debt that I owe, a debt I can never repay, a gratefulness in my own heart because He has purified me from all righteousness. He's given me a new name, a new life, a new heart, and eternity with Him. And because of that, I praise myself in willing submission to Him as King, to Him as Lord, and I, I exist as His servant. Does that make sense? You follow in those words. They're powerful when you understand what James is saying. So, let's keep going. We don't want to live on that, that the whole time. Um, <clears throat> some things I'll tell you about this letter. Uh, James, he's not like Paul. I don't know who your favorite author is. Um, when I was in college, and, and I'm going to show my personality here, they would always give me great things to read. And maybe Anybody here, like, you're a massive C.S. Lewis fan. Any huge C.S. Lewis fans in here? Okay, if you're not read it, it is great writing. C.S. Lewis is a phenomenal writer. But some of C.S. Lewis' writings, I'm like, dude, can we not get a period in here and break up some sentences? I'm like, you're killing me, man. And I, I enjoy reading. I mean, it's not like I don't enjoy it, but I'm like, okay, you've got like 
this incredibly long, powerful sentence that really, if we could just break this up a little bit so I can, so I can take bites of it. Um, sometimes Paul does that. There are times when Paul's writing and I'm like, yeah, Paul, and I got to back up. I got to reread it. I'm like, okay, I think I got that. Then I've got to back up, reread it again. And that's the way it is for me at times with Paul. You know, and they, in fact, I think it was that Peter makes fun of Paul. That man, he writes a lot of words. James is not like that. James is, man, he's incredibly direct. He's incredibly to the point. Uh, I'll tell you that you could almost say it, there's, there's some ethics that are really buried in James's writing. Um, there's, there's this, it almost at times feels like, like Proverbs. But I'll tell you that, like, my grandpa was a pretty plain-spoken man. You know, I don't know what, what, your, what your, your grandparents are like. My grandpa was a simple man. He used a lot of words. He's got the point. And he'd just say things the way they were. He'd tell you straight the way it was. And it didn't take him, like me, it takes me 20 minutes to say it. My grandpa could say it in about two sentences. It doesn't mean my, my grandpa was any less spiritual, any less wise. And in some ways, I look at him going, man, there's a lot more wisdom in his pragmatic way to get to the point. And that's James. Don't, don't look at it as like, well, that's pretty simple stuff. No, no, it's not simple. The things that James is going to give us is going to flat step on our toes. James says stuff that makes me mad. James says stuff that I can't even think about living out of my own life at times, it feels like. And so don't, don't ever look at James. I've heard some theologians look at James like, oh, it's a, it's a simple book. Really? Try living it out. Not simple at all. It's an incredibly complex book. It's full of deep, practical, spiritual things. The next thing I'd say to James about James is this. Man, it's kind of like you ever, you ever found that moment where you needed directions to get somewhere? I'm going to tell a story. I, I don't know if I can say what store I was in. I can say it. I was in Lowe's. And I don't want to say what city it was in. It wasn't, wasn't close to hearing like that. I go to Lowe's, and I'm trying to get just a, a part that I needed for our house. I need this little, I need it, yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. I didn't know where to find it. So I'm looking for, no, 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 I was, I was looking for scaffolding. I didn't think what I was looking for. I was looking for scaffolding, and I wanted to find the wheels that go in the bottom of the scaffolding. So I walked up, and I asked this individual, I said, hey, do you have, the, do you have scaffolding? And she just goes, what scaffolding? I was like, okay, all right, here we go. I was like, well, it's, you know, the stuff you can kind of sit it together and try to explain what it was. It goes up. Oh, I don't know if we have scaffolding. Let me find out if we have scaffolding. I'll need to ask somebody, but thank you for explaining what scaffolding was. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. She, and then she goes, talks to this person. She looks at him and she goes, this individual's looking for scaffolding. And the person goes, yeah. And she goes, what scaffolding is? And she does this whole explanation of scaffolding. And by this time, I'm like, okay, Whew, all right. Five-minute conversation, what scaffolding is. So he's looking for scaffolding. Sir, you're looking for scaffolding, correct? I was like, well, actually, I'm looking for the wheels. Oh, well, he's actually looking for the wheels to scaffolding. Do we have the wheels to scaffolding? Because that's what he's looking for. I'm like, can we just shorten out these sentences, please? I'm like, come on. And so looks at me, and this girl goes, I don't know. She goes, oh, hold on. Let me make a phone call. I'll call this guy. She calls because this gentleman's looking for scaffolding. What scaffolding is? And she starts explaining what scaffolding is on the phone. And just goes through this whole thing. And I'm like, I feel sweat forming on my head. I'm like, I just want to know if you're scaffolding. And she explains, like, long conversation. Gets off the phone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Hangs up. She goes, well, sir, we actually do have scaffolding. I'm like, okay, what, where is, well, what it is, it's a little bit different than scaffolding, but where you can find it is if you'll head down there, do you see it? I'm like, they have all these aisle numbers. I'm like, can we just give an aisle number? Just give me an aisle number. It's all it needs an aisle number. She's like, do you see that display? I was like, huh, huh? We'll go past that display down just a little bit more. And if you go past the next aisle where paint is and go down just a little bit further, and, and then as you head down, turn right, I'm like, just give me an aisle number. Just give me an aisle number. That's all I want. And I'm sitting there listening. I'm like, okay, get to the point. Get to the point. I'm like, she goes, and all of a sudden you go down aisle 17. I'm like running at this point. I'm gone. Anyway, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody that just takes forever 
That's not James. He's just going to get after it. He's just going to drill. He's going to he's going to drill the point right home. Please don't think it's somehow meant to be simple theology. So you can step on our toes. Uh, he's going to make the people sometimes who feel like they're really holy realize that they need to live this out with with shoe with you know you know shoes on the ground. Yes. Oh, no, they didn't have the right size. They did not have the right size scaffolding. I went down there, and I'm like, I've got like the big tube. The t- is it two-inch, I think? Two-inch tubes on scaffolding, and all they had was like that little bitty stuff. I was like, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. No, they did not have the wheels. I, showed up, I came out, literally came out 10 minutes later. My wife's sitting in the car because I was like, hey, I'm just going to run in real quick. I get in the car. She's like, where were you? I was like, I don't want to talk about it. Just don't even talk about this right now. So let's keep, keep going a little bit more. Um, some more things about James. He talks about himself being a servant. Uh, love the fact he calls himself that. Calls himself the bond servant. We talk about the fact that's a willing, permanent slave. Uh, and he talks about, you, you just see this element of individual humility. You know, just a, a quick point of application or in heart. Does our introduction reflect personal humility? Um, you know, and is it, is it reflected in the way that we view our own life? Because so many times we've got this innate desire to make ourselves appear as more than what we actually are whether it be in how great our families are, how great our jobs are, how great our titles are, how great our houses are, how great our bank account is, how great, how great. I mean, you know how rare it is in your life when you ask somebody the question, how are you doing? What is always the answer? Fine or great? I'm doing great. Rarely do you have somebody with a heart of humility to say, yeah, not not so great. Can we talk about that? Or rarely have somebody that introduce themselves who would introduce themselves to say, yeah, I'm just, just a servant of Jesus. That's, that's my title. That's what I do. Because we live in a place of structures and hierarchies and prestige. And, and we have so many different ways that we define in this country and in this culture that we define the hierarchy of what, is, of what really is man. And in this moment, James just tips all that upside down and says, I'm just a servant of Jesus. When he had every right to present himself to be something more. I think it was a lesson for us to learn. Let's keep going. we got to move. All right. I think the next thing he does is, uh, if you keep reading that, he says, James, a servant of God. And then he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's hold on for just a second. He says, a servant of God. And then what does he do? He says, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask you just to be put on the humanity hat for a second? If you're James, what did you just do? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've got an older brother, but I'd like to punch my older brother at times. Uh, my older brother has, we've had more arguments, more fights. I love him, but there, there are times where, not now, I love him now, but I remember growing up, there are times like, phew, I don't know that I'd, I'd want to be in service to my brother to this day. But even now, I love him. You know, so if you got an older brother, you know, would you want to say, yeah. My name's so-and-so, a servant of David. I'm like, oh, eh, maybe not. You know, I look at it. I want to be Jason, a servant of Mark. Not really. I don't. And I'm looking at this moment where he just, he just declares it. I'm James, a servant of my older brother. But there's something else powerful that he does in there. You understand, he's, he's a good Jewish man who grew up going to synagogue. He grew up knowing the Torah. He grew up knowing the story of God. Watch what he does here, folks, is it's no light matter. What does he do? He separates God into two people. Mm-hmm. That's bold. That's bold. 
this guy just flat. That, when you call somebody who look at Jesus Christ as, as, as if it's as his first and last name, Christ is not his last name. It's never, it's not his last name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Like, I'm Jason French. It's not like, well, it's Jesus Christ. You know, it's not like if he went to school, they'd say, Christ, Jesus, are you here? No, Christ is a title. It's a title. It means anointed one. It means he is, there's a frog over there in the world. It means that he is, somebody on the podcast have no idea. Some frog is behind me making noises. It means what he's saying in this moment is that not only is he Jesus, but he is the Christ. And he has just put his brother on an equal platform with God the Father, with Yahweh, with Adonai, Elohim. This is a big deal, folks. Big deal. Big, big deal that he's done what really might have been one of the first books written. I think the first. I think it's a testimony to the divinity of Jesus. You know, I think, can you imagine, you know, we talked about, he slept in the same room as God. Like, I wonder if in that moment he's replaying those conversations. He grew up eating the same table as God. He grew up, you know, walking to synagogue and sitting in there with God. In all this moment, now he realizes, man, my, my brother is not only my brother, he's my Lord. My brother is not only my brother, he's the anointed one. And if you get to the point that you, as a half-brother, can look at, at Jesus. I mean, look at the testimony of James. If anybody would have, would have wanted to, to deny it, this was a guy in John, 5, John 7 we read, didn't believe in him. And now he's proclaiming from basically the rooftop saying, my brother's the Christ. I've seen him alive. It's a bold thing that he does with the deity of Christ. I think it speaks to Jesus' glory. That that word of self-introduction that he gives puts a high value on the lordship and glory of God. He elevates his brother to an amazing standing in his letter. He lowers himself and he elevates his brother. And I think there's a lesson for all of us in that. He lowers himself and he elevates Jesus. And he puts him as God. All right, let's keep going. I think it's powerful. I dig that, but let's keep going. He goes in, and he states his next statement. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This, I believe, is a big deal. And what I love about it is I think he bridges. Okay, when you hear 12 tribes, what comes to mind? Yeah, Old Testament. That's a a great answer. In this moment, when you hear 12 tribes, if you didn't grow up in church, and, you know, and maybe you're new to, to this environment, 12 tribes is old history, it's Old Testament talk. You hear it throughout the Old Testament. Now, wait a second, James. I thought we'd close the door on Malachi. We've got a brand new book here, okay? We've got a brand new day. Jesus resurrecting the dead. The old is gone, the new has come, you know? And it's kind of like, we're, we're, peop- we're not people of the Old Testament. We're people of the New Testament. We're, we're New Testament Christians. And I'm going to tell you, I really don't believe there's any such thing I think there's one story that God has been telling. And sometimes one of, the, one of the dangers we do is when we want to draw this distinction, well, that's Old Testament stuff. We're just new to... Mm, no, 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 no. This is God's story. It's not as if Jesus shows up and he's like, ah, oh, man, my bad, that didn't work. Let's go with plan B. No. This is not plan B we're on right now. It wasn't like God was in heaven going, hmm, well, that was a good experiment. What do you think now, Jesus? I don't know, maybe I should die. We'll solve it that way. No. This has been a part of God's plan. The death of Jesus. He knew it was coming from the garden. This has been prophesied. It's been told about. It's been, we understood that you know, the servant was going to give his life. We understand that from Isaiah. We understand that from Psalms. We knew this day was coming. 
So be very careful in your own heart when you draw the distinction between old and new. And I think what James does here, one of the reasons why I love the fact that I think it's a first book, it is a great pickup from Malachi. That all of a sudden you go from this Old Testament right into Jesus. And one of the first things you hear is this throwback to the Old Testament. But when James talks about it, when he talks about the 12 tribes, he's not talking about Reuben and Manasseh. He's not talking about Gad. He's not talking about Naphtali. He's not talking about all those tribes. Who he's talking about, who do you think he's talking about? Well, let me show you. Let me show you who James is talking about. All right, I told you that James was a leader in a church, right? Remember that? Anybody know why they're scattered? What do you think of? When you think of the word scattered, what comes to your mind? What, just give me any image that comes to mind. Scattered. Marbles. Huh, marbles? Okay, great. What else? It's a great image. Give me another one. Another image. Scattered. Come on, you've got to have an image that comes to mind. Legos. Legos. Somebody else got one? Marbles, Legos, what else? Huh? Seed, okay, great. Anybody else got one? My kids' toys, huh? Dandelions. dandelions. That's a great one. Let's go. With, we'll go with dandelions. That's a great one. Somebody else said one that I heard, but I didn't hear. I heard somebody say one, but I hear what it was. That's a great one. Let's go there. Uh, turn to the book of Acts real quick. Okay, I told you that James was a leader in a church. Remember that? Where was that church? Perfect. That's exactly right. So there's this moment in. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Acts 8, and at the same time, I want you to kind of hold Acts 8 in one hand, and Acts 8 in one hand, and I hold you Acts 1 in the other. We're going to flip back and forth. Okay? We're going to flip back and forth. Acts 1.8. We'll start with that one, and then we'll go to chapter 8. So hang tight. It's going to be really important. Somebody at your table, read Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Okay, you're reading that. You will see power. You may witnesses in the earth. You may be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Is that what you read? Okay, so that's who's saying those words. Okay, Jesus, written by Luke. He's writing these words down. He's saying this. He writes down what Jesus says. So there's a story, and at that point, you're hearing that. You're like, well, what's he talking about? Like, what do you mean we're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, which is kind of right outside Jerusalem? Samaria, which is kind of a greater area even outside Judea. Ends of the world, ends of the earth, what do you mean? We're going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth? But at this point, you've got to realize this is a ragtag group of people that are scared to death, man. They're terrified. I mean, they are panicked. They're afraid they're all going to die just like Jesus did. When this was written to the early church, they are not gripped with power. They are gripped with fear. In fact, if you go to John 20, I believe it's John 20, it talks about how they locked themselves away for fear of the Jews. They're panicked. They're scared out of their ever-loving minds, man. They've rolled up a towel, put it by the door. They're standing there. They're talking in hushed tones. They pulled the blinds down. You know, they put, you know, wraps around the windows so nobody can see in. And they're like, shh, be quiet. Anytime a baby's crying, they're like, shh, quiet. I mean, this, this church is panicked. They're scared out of their minds. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Like, what are you talking about? We're we're terrified. We're petrified right now. How are they going to become witnesses? It's powerful. It's powerful. And the way that it happens is not what you think. 
It's very different than the way it happens now. I mean, now if we want to be witnesses, then we tell people to share your faith at work. If we want to be witnesses into the world, then, man, we send kids to a great school like Ozark. We train them up. We give them great tools. We pour, have a d- great men and women pour into their lives and then send them off into another field. This is a little bit different how it played out in Acts. It wasn't the same way. But they're still witnesses. Do you know how you get the fulfillment of that? Well, I say, I'll call it a prophecy. We can say that. I think it's safe. Or that word of truth that Jesus speaks. Anybody know how that comes about? Saul. Kind of, yeah. We'll say we could start there, yeah. It really happens when you turn from Acts 1.8. Now I want you to reach over to your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. 1.8 to 8.1. Read that real quick. So read it at your tables. Somebody read that out loud. Acts 8.1. You see it? Here's what you need to realize. This is James's church they're talking about. This is in Jerusalem. This is his group he's pastor of. And not only is it this moment, he's right with Saul, but really it's the word, the word persecution. That all of a sudden, like dandelions, they've kicked that dandelion. And all of a sudden, those seeds are spreading all over. And they think that they've somehow crushed this flower. They somehow think somehow they've, they've crushed the seed head. But little do they know that all they've done is spread it. And the most powerful thing that ever happens is when the church faces persecution, because it never kills us, it always just makes us spread. And that's exactly what happens. They thought they could shut us up. They thought they could shut us down. They thought they could put us you know, into submission. They'll never put the church of Jesus in submission. I mean, we're still waiting for the gates of hell to overcome. It won't happen. They won't stop us. And they came against James's church, and he was their flock. You can imagine if all of a sudden, take a, we, our pastor, take somebody, I know we got several pastors, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Mark as an example, and I know he doesn't like to set himself apart, but take Mark. If he's the pastor of this church, and all of a sudden they shut it down, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got this great fear of people not just, not just losing their jobs or losing their homes, but losing their very lives. Because what you see play out is Stephen is about to be killed. He's about to be the first martyr for the church, and they literally flee because they're going to be slaughtered. I mean, they just gone. And all of a sudden, this dandelion starts spreading. And what are the first two regions you see mentioned? Mentioned right there. What are they? In that text, in 8.1, remember that prophecy, that word of truth, Judea and Samaria. Go back to 1.8, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, where they already are, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And not only does it go there, it goes to Rome, where they eventually cut off Paul's head, and Paul eventually raises up this church in Rome, and it transforms an entire region. And then Rome itself, the very thing that persecuted, becomes a great outlet for the gospel. This is amazing stuff. James is on the very cusp of something absolutely spectacular. When you're reading what's happening in 8.1, and the church was, what was the word they used? What was the word James used to describe what happened to them? They were what? Scattered. What, excuse me. What do they use in Acts eight one? You're right. They use a word scattered. What's this, what's the word that James uses? Same word. Scattered. To the twelve nations. Scattered. Scattered. They're just gone. 
And it's not just here. It's, it's not just this one time of persecution. If you go to Acts chapter 12, we're not going to get into this right now and have time. Herod brings in another harsh persecution that again causes the church to spread like wildfire. But James does something here. He goes back. He makes his connection to the Old Testament. And he wants to say, we, the church, are the 12 tribes. And in that moment, there's some... Div- I don't need to get into that. It's a whole other theological thing I'm not going to touch on. It's just going to take me in that road that's going to take me 20 minutes to explain on whether or not the council has taken place yet and all that. We'll just, we'll say that James is writing, I, I feel safe to say that he's writing to primarily a Jewish audience and they would have understood that. But when he says the 12 tribes scattered abroad, by no means is he talking about Naphtali and Gad. He's not talking. He's not talking about all those old tribes that we talk about. Who are the 12 tribes scattered abroad? Who are they? Huh? Yeah, the church. It's the church, yeah. He's calling the church the same thing that in the Old Testament they called the people of God. In the Old Testament, they called them the the children of God, the Israelites, the 12 tribes of Israel. What James does in this moment, he just says, you're the fulfillment of what was promised. That you're exactly what God had in mind. And now in Jesus, these 12 tribes continue. Now they're the church. And there's not a disconnect from what happened in the old. There's an attachment. There's a drawing out. There's this bridge that happens between Naphtali and, and James. And he says, it's not like the Old Testament folded up and put it away. No, this story is not done being told. These 12 tribes are now the church. And in the same way that God had a holy people, a holy nation belonging to him, in the Old Testament, who was that? Who was that royal priesthood in the Old Testament? Who was that holy nation in the Old Testament? The people of Israel. But now what does Peter say? He says, but now you are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people belonging to God. That's what we are. We are God's children. We are God's family. And that's a beautiful thing that Paul does in Ephesians 2, is he bridges this cool gap between the children of Israel of us. He brings this vine together. He merges them. He grafts us in so we're one nation. We're one story, all being told through Jesus. It's a beautiful story. And what James does right here is he just draws the thread all the way through Jesus and said, this story is not done being told. Let's keep going. I get excited about things. Sorry, man. I get all wound up. So anyway, I think you want to understand that, man, the Old Testament is also your story. It's not their story. It's not their story. It's your story too. That you are part of that. Don't ever think, well, it's those people and us. No, 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 no. This is one continuous thread being drawn all the way through humanity. And it's all of our story. Don't get a disconnect between them and us. No, no, no. Don't ever think that, well, the Old Testament's for those old people, the New Testament's for us. No, it is God's story. You have this spot in history that you get to be a part of. But it is a continuous thread that's being drawn all the way through. All right. Um, I get excited about that. So he uses that, na- that, that language. The next thing he does, watch this. See, that's something else that's really cool. Oh, I'm not in James anymore. Sorry. Back to James. Back to James. I've got to get to myself. Hold on. He does something else here that's really interesting. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Okay, now, if you're Jewish and you hear twelve tribes scattered among the nations, immediately they don't have the context we've got. They're not connecting the dots between the church being the new They don't understand that the church is a royal priesthood. They don't understand that the church is a holy nation. They don't have that context yet. 
mean, we've got, we've got more knowledge at this point than James Ryder's. There's so much more information that we have through Paul's letters and everything else that's written through the Gospels. There's so much, we have access to so much more. But at this moment, if you're just, just forget about you knowing everything and act like you're just reading this. Act like your family's just been pushed out. They've been shoved out of Jerusalem. And this letter's making the circuit around. And all of a sudden it gets to the region where you're at. And you're a good Jewish person. And all of a sudden you hear, you're scared. You've left your home. You're in Samaria. You're in Judea. I don't know where you are. And all of a sudden this passage gets read to the 12 tribes. Okay, that sounds familiar. Scattered. If you're a good Jewish kid, or a good Jewish man, a good Jewish woman, what comes to mind? 12 tribes scattered. What do you immediately think of? Maybe Tower of Babel, okay. Would have been before 12 tribes. But yeah, I get, I get where you're coming from that in terms of being scattered. What else comes to mind? 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Slavery, would you say? Exile, yeah. I think at this moment, you know, we could take either one of those examples, but the whole issue is wilderness. There's different stories where the Israelites feel this tension. There's moments where they're on this journey through this wilderness. And it's hard, man. It's hard. You guys remember what the Amalekites did to them? Remember what the Amalekites did to them? Their cousins, distant cousins. Whole time that they're on this journey. And granted, their disobedience leads them down that road. It's their own fault, no doubt. Not trying to justify it. Amalekites come along behind when they're all marching through the desert. And they sweep in. And they kill the old. They kill the sick. They kill the ones that can't keep up. Sometimes being scattered is a scary place to be, man. I don't know if you've ever found your place, yourself in a place where you just feel like, I don't belong here. You find yourself in a place of vulnerability where you're like, how did I get here? You ever felt like that? Maybe sometimes it's like me because of your own sin and stupidity you find yourself in that place. How did I get here? I don't know if you ever found yourself in a place going, man, I feel vulnerable right now. I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. You have to realize the life these people are going through. They've left the, the home city. They've left the church. They've left their extended family. Many of their family would have been Jews who absolutely hated them for turning to Jesus. They've watched their friends being killed. They've watched their friends being pushed out. And now here they are in Judea and Samaria. Wondering, what do we, what do, we do now? We're scattered. We're afraid. We're in the wilderness, man. We're out here alone. We don't, have, we don't have a preacher anymore. We don't have a church to go to anymore. We don't, we don't have any other believers to connect with. We've got maybe our family and one of their family, and they're scared to death to even get together anymore. And we've been pushed out. We've been shoved out to the fringes. They're scared, man. And what they need is a word from their pastor. And when, when James writes this, it's a word from the preacher, a word from their pastor. And he says, I know you're scattered. I know you're pushed out. And it reminds me a whole lot of that Old Testament language. You know, the Old Testament tribes, they were dispersed throughout a, a very difficult and dangerous world. Difficult and dangerous, man. As the Israelites wandered around through the wilderness. They realized that their homeland was elsewhere. They realized that the Israelites realized when they're wilderness, this is not our home, man. We're not safe here. Whole time they're wondering, man, this is not home. 
We're not safe in this place. I mean, they're walking around literally with weapons of warfare, and God says they're afraid to fight. I mean, they're fearful. Fearful. They go to bed at night, wake up in the morning and find out the Amalekites have swept through and killed a few more people. Constantly dealing with pressures and stuff all around them. Other nations threatening to take them over. I think they also, there's no doubt that they dealt with temptation. I mean, you look at what happens with that golden calf. No doubt they dealt with temptations when they're in that wilderness. Scary place to be. We just need, we need God to do things for us. Look at all the other nations. You know what? And all of a sudden they build a calf and they bow down and whether it be in, in lust or temptation, they bow down to, to what the world's got to offer. There's no doubt, no doubt that the, the children of Israel did that. There's no doubt that there was temptation for them to conform to their environment. No doubt they wanted to become like the Amalekites. No doubt there are moments that maybe we could just become like these other people. In fact, God says that he has to lead them through the Egyptian, through the, through the, through the long road in, uh, in Exodus chapter 13. He could have taken them on a shortcut, but he didn't because he knew they'd just go back to Egypt. There's no doubt that they just thought, man, let's just go back. Let's just go back to the pagan environment. Let's just go back the way it was. I don't wonder if these Jewish Christians ever felt like that. One of them felt like, let's just, let's just go back. Forget we're Christians. Let's just go back. Maybe if we just turn our backs on all this, all the trouble goes away. I wonder, I'm sure the Israelites felt that way. Like, dude, just kill Moses and go to Egypt. I mean, at least there we had food to eat. At least there people were hunting us down. At least there they protected us. I'm sure at points in time there was rumbling among the, among the Israelites. Just go back. Just go back. And no doubt, I bet these very people felt the same way. Just go back, man. We can't go back to Jerusalem. He's not as Christians. Let's just go back to the pagan way of lifestyle, man. Let's just go back the way we used to live. Nobody's trying to kill us then. If we keep living like this, they're going to slaughter us, man. Look what they did to Stephen. Look what they did to all these other people. They're going to kill us all. Let's just go back. I'm sure they felt like that in the wilderness. They knew they weren't home. You know, in the same way I can say that about the wilderness... And in the same way that I can say that about this early, fledging, growing church, turn me real quick to 1 Peter. Ooh, I got to hurry, sorry. 1 Peter. Chapter 2. Let me ask you a question. When he says they're scattered and he draws this wilderness motif of a people oppressed, a people tempted to go back, a people who just maybe want to conform to their own environment, he draws this wilderness motif of a people who are afraid, a people who want to go home but they're not home yet. When he draws this wilderness motif, you can see it for the children of Israel, right? And probably you can see like, oh yeah, I get the imagery. I get why he's using that. I get why he's using that for, the, for these people right now. In James chapter 1 verse 1. But I'd say that it even goes deeper than that. I'd say that motif continues for us today. Because when you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, my bad, verse 9. He says, but you, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Do you see this beautiful merging between the 12, 12 tribes, even in what Peter's writing right there? He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now use those words right now to picture these people in Israel and use them even right now as you think about your place in eternity. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And I think James' book, James's book is going to do this next verse. Live such good lives among the pagans Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the question I ask you, (laughs) that frog, you are, (laughs) I know when you guys on the podcast can't hear it, but it's funny. That frog, it's the timing. Every time I get ready to say something important, it's like, it's just awesome. That was the worst frog croak ever. What I'd say is that you, you (laughs) are, (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Lord, thanks for laughter. You are those 12 tribes. And you have been scattered. (laughs) That you're you're being dispersed into a very vicious world. I mean, (laughs) you look look at at the fact of what it says about Satan. He's a raging lion seeking who may devour. That there's no doubt that you, in the same way, I'd say in a similar way, have been scattered into a very violent world. A world that so much wants you to, to do what the early children of Israel were called to do. Just conform. Just conform. Take your place. Shut up. Quit raising. No more talk about Jesus. As long as you don't bring Jesus up at work, as long as you don't bring Jesus up at, at our next family gathering, as long as you don't bring Jesus up in this relationship, we can keep things fine. But the moment you bring him up, all tension comes in. You're told to conform. I think at the same time, you know that you're not home yet. If the earthly tent we live in, 2 Corinthians, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, man, who cares? we got a building from God, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan because we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. I mean, we know this is not our home. We know that we have a place called eternity. We know that Jesus has, has prepared a place for us, and we long for that day. And meanwhile, just like the children of Israel in the Old Testament, just like the early church when they're scattered from Jerusalem, we wander on this earth waiting for that day that we're restored with eternity, waiting for that day that we get to see Jesus just like James did face to face. And we just say, Jesus, we are your servant. We long for that day that we get to go home. We've got a lot in common with these folks. And we know what it's like, and you know what it's like to feel life's pressures. You know what it's like to feel life's temptations. And I think you know what it's like to live in a place where it's just best if you conform to a pagan environment. Well, you know. Because if you conform, no one's got an issue. You stand out with gospel implications, now we got problems. You are God's people. You're just not home yet. Shortly after James writes his book, maybe, I don't know how long, maybe 10 years, we don't know exactly. 
the author of this book, the half-brother of Jesus, will be led to the temple. There's a lot of church history of this next part that differentiates exactly what happened. One historian writes that they wanted James to address and recant his words. And they literally took him to the top of the temple. And he stood up there. And church history says that he would not recant. One historian says he proclaimed Jesus. They called him James the Just. James the Just. Because they said James did what was right. Another person calls him, they, they called him Old Camel Knees. Why would they call him Old Camel Knees? Want to know? That's one of his nicknames. James the Just because he cared about justice, he did what was right, he took care of others. It's a good pastor. James the Just. The other one was Old Camel Knees. Any idea why they might call him Old Camel Knees? It was. It was the amount of time that he spent in prayer. He was known for those two things. James adjusts an old camel knees. Man, I can tell you what, if I were to die being known for those two things, that'd be a good life. And they took him up to the temple. He wouldn't recant. And they threw him off. And when his body hit the deck, he didn't die. He's still alive. And church history says that they pulled out a fuller's club. Fuller's Club was a short club, about this long. And basically, somebody who would take care of laundry, he would use that club to, to beat the clothing, to get the dust out, to, when they washed it, to you know, soften the fabric, to do all kinds of work with the fabric as he cleaned it. And when James hit, he wasn't dead. So they brought out a Fuller's Club, And church history says they hit him so hard that his brain spilled out. This man will not only live for Jesus. When you read his writings, he will give his life as a servant of God. Y'all, this is a great book. Great book to dive into. And he's going to write these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many different kinds. Because don't you know that the testing of your faith will develop perseverance? Perseverance got to finish its work so that you can be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. And he's going to lay out how do you live in a pagan world? How do you live when you feel scattered? How do you live when everything's coming against you? How do you live, man, practically? Just, just tell me how to, how to do this. Don't give me the long words. Just get to the point because I'm living what feels like an urgent life. And James just gets to the point. So let's live in this book for a bit. Let's dive into it. Um, I'm going to try to give you a recommendation because I know you usually do this class. I'll give you another book to read that can be kind of a counterbalance to what I'm doing. Um, I'll try to have one for you. If you want to buy, John MacArthur's got a good book. Some others do. Mark, give me some recommendations. Let me see what those are today. He, uh, he emailed me. Um, let me look. So Mark had a couple of recommendations. If you want to write these down. Uh, John MacArthur's book on James is, is good. I differ with him on a few things, but he's a lot smarter than I am. Um, uh, Mark Christian recommended, he, he re- uh, recommended Opening Up James by Roger Ellsworth. And I recommend, man, I, I'm going to teach stuff in here, but like all things, you need to search Scripture, you need to compare, you need to, you need to 
check things out, and I'm okay with that. Um, that's a good study, and uh, there's, a, there's something called the Opening Up series by Day One Publishing. Those are two things that, that Mark Christian recommended as well. So you can, you can dive into those. Hey, Jesus, we thank you um, that we get to be your servant. And God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the words of your little brother, of your servant. And God, I pray that, um, that his words would change the way that we live, would change the way that we interface with a world that wants us to conform. Uh, God, we are thankful for the wisdom that's going to come out of this book. We're grateful for it. Shouldn't we pray? Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.